This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance, Gerald May. Our capacity to form intricate thoughts and feelings can and should help us appreciate other people and the world around us. But too often, we use our thoughts and feelings as substitutes for other people and the world. We react more to our mental constructs than to real people and situations. The more we do this, the more likely we are to hold grudges, harbor resentments, believe rumors, and trust our own fantasies. We grow far away from real contact with our neighbors. We've made something of them, something that breeds fear and rage in us and beckons us toward destruction. It is here that I think the contemplative option holds real practical promise. Contemplation is simply perceiving and responding to what is, just as it is, here and now. In other words, contemplation makes nothing of anything. In the immediate attentiveness that comes when you take a breath, open your eyes and really see and feel what is right here, right now, there is immense freedom from paranoia, prejudice, and self-delusion. Each moment is fresh, each encounter open, each touch profoundly real. When a contemplative moment happens in the midst of a conflict, it's like everything has suddenly been washed over by a flood of forgiveness. A reading of scripture from Psalm 119, verse 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who live with spiritual integrity. Blessed are those who honor the inner being, who follow you with their whole heart, who enfold the world with love and walk on peaceful paths. You have shown us the way of truth, the way that leads to freedom. Oh, that I might ever reflect the light. Then I shall know inner peace as I surrender myself into your hands. I will praise you with a grateful heart as I lean on your great kindness, as I forsake the path of darkness. Oh, have mercy on me. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew 5, 21 to 37. You have heard our people say to those in ancient times, you must not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Yet I say to you, whoever is angry with a companion will be judged in court. And whoever calls a companion a fool will go before the Sanhedrin, the highest court. And whoever calls a companion a scoundrel will taste the fire of Guy Hinnom. If then you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember your companion holds something against you, leave your gift before the altar, and go first to be reconciled with your companion, and then come back and present your offering. Come to terms quickly with your adversary before it is too late, and he drags you into court, and you are thrown into a debtor's cell, for you will stay there until you have paid the last cent. You have heard our people say you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with the purpose of desiring her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even if it is your best eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Better for part of you to be destroyed than for all of you to be cast into Gehenna. And if your hand, even your right hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better that than find yourself in the valley of Hinnom. Our own custom says if anyone wants to be rid of his wife, he can divorce her merely by giving her a letter of dismissal. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, except for infidelity, potentially puts her in a position of unfaithfulness if she marries again, as well as he who marries her. Again, our people have said since ancient times, you shall not break your vows to God, but must fulfill them all. Yet I say, do not make any vows. And even to say by heavens is a sacred vow to God, for the heavens are God's throne. And if you say by the earth, it is a sacred vow, for the earth is his footstool. And do not swear by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not even swear by your head, for you cannot turn one hair white or black. Simply say, yes, I will, or no, I will not. Your word is enough. To strengthen your promise with a vow comes from the evil one. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. When I was growing up in the church, we would hear the Ten Commandments read each Sunday and included among them were the commands, do not murder and do not commit adultery. And as a kid growing up in the church, it was easy to assume at least on these two, I'm good, right? I'm off the hook. Do not murder, check. Do not commit adultery, check. What else you got? You know, this is, this is pretty easy. I'm doing, doing okay here. In a similar way, I think, we may find ourselves watching the news, reading the paper, and noting all of the trouble that is happening in the world, a lot of which does revolve around violence and sex. And it's really easy to see these problems as all happening out there. And I might ask myself, am I com contributing to this chaos? I don't think so. Check. The audience that is sitting and listening to Jesus would have also heard these commands all their lives as part of the teaching of the Torah or the law of Moses. And if Jesus had shown up and just said, do not murder and do not commit adultery, they would have said, yeah, we've, we've heard this our whole lives. And it might also have been tempting for them to think, maybe all our trouble is out there. And certainly they had trouble as they looked at the world around them and the realities in which they lived there in the first century under Roman occupation. But Jesus takes them and us to a deeper law, the law of the heart. And at the level of the heart, there isn't a single one of us who hasn't been angry in a way that we regret. There isn't a single one of us who hasn't indulged in lust in a way that we're ashamed to admit. 
And if you haven't, you know, we'll check your pulse, make sure you're still, <laughs> still breathing. But this is not to point fingers in any direction except perhaps ourselves. For as Carl Jung said, only a fool is interested in other people's guilt since he cannot alter it. The wise man learns only from his own guilt. He will ask himself, who am I that all of this should happen to me? And to find the answer to this fateful question, he will look into his own heart. And so Jesus invites us to look within. That could be a scary thing. Much easier to look out there and point out all the flaws happening in our world. And yet I don't think the goal of Jesus taking into these deeper waters is simply to produce shame or perhaps to do that at all. Now, that feeling may arise as we consider our thoughts and our actions in these areas, but I think the goal for Jesus is for us to have whole and healthy relationships. He's always talking again in the, relation, in the context here of relationship and how do we restore relationships. And in order for us to have whole and healthy relationships, he invites us to become whole and healthy human beings. So what might be the significance of these commands which were given in ancient times, which Jesus is referring to? Why would God inscribe these in stone, so to speak, to begin with? Well, let's start with murder. Might be obvious why that's on the list, right? But, but my, why might you want to take the life of someone, particularly someone you know? And of course, murder is the idea not just Killing in general, killing could happen in ancient times in battle, still today, or in self-defense, and I don't think that's what's under the rubric here of murder. So why might you want to commit murder? Well, a friend noted this to me recently. He said, murder was the only way to get rid of someone who really bothered you in ancient times. Because if you think about it, you lived in a small village. You were around the same people all of the time, and it wasn't easy to just say, well, I'm just going to go to that part of town today. There may not have even been a town. And if we think about the people who are getting this law from Moses there at Mount Sinai in the desert, right? they're traveling from Egypt into the Promised Land, and they're divided by tribes and family groups, and they're kind of moving all together. And so you're around the same people all of the time. And if there's somebody who really is annoying you, bothering you, has done something really bad to you, and you can't stand the sight of even their face or even hearing the sound of their voice or being around them, perhaps in that context, murder might seem like an option. Now today we have it a bit easier, right? We can just pull up someone's profile on Facebook and hit block, <laughs> right? Or unfriend. And certainly we have more ways to communicate and interact with folks today than they did in ancient times, but we also have more ways to avoid folks. Now we can even ghost people. Anyone heard of this term? No. <laughs> Sounds like killing them, doesn't it, ghosting people? No, I just heard of this yesterday, actually. And the term uh, ghosting and the verb to ghost have been added to the dictionary, which Merriam-Webster describes as the act 
as the phenomenon of leaving a relationship of some kind by abruptly ending all contact with the other person, especially electronic contact like text, emails, and chats. Well, now you learned something new. I'm not advising you to do this, but there it is. And if Jesus had Twitter back in the day and was delivering the Sermon on the Mount by Twitter, he might have tweeted, you have heard it said, don't ghost someone, but I say to you, don't unfriend them. <laughs> but then we would have to explain to Jesus that sometimes you unfriend someone so that you don't have to murder them. <laughs> but we have more options today, right, don't we, for avoiding someone. We can whether it's cutting off electronic communications, but we can move easier, we can plan our route to go a certain way or to not show up to same events, we've got calendars, we can figure all that stuff out, right? They didn't have those options in those days, and so if you couldn't murder someone, it meant you had to live with them and you had to figure out how to get along. And while we may not have killed someone, certainly we've hurt people and been hurt by people and then intentionally cut them out of our lives. And sometimes I will say that this is necessary for our own mental health, well-being, or safety. And so we don't want to say that there aren't times where perhaps there is valid reason to do just that. But long before we kill someone or unfriend them, we get angry at them. And we imagine that they provoked us. We imagine that they are the problem. They are the reason I am so angry. And there are a lot of reasons we get angry. We're disappointed in some way. The person has disappointed us. A situation has disappointed us. It hasn't lived up to what we want it to be, what we expect it to be, perhaps what we demand it to be. So our will is thwarted in some way and we react. For a perfectionist, I think anger comes a bit quicker. Anyone can relate to that? You have this idea of how the world should go or how people should be, right? And when that doesn't happen, you get a little bit angry. And it's usually their fault. Why don't they have this vision of how the world should be and how they should be that I have, you know? And so you can get angry. But there are other things involved with anger, lack of patience, unresolved issues. And there's physiological realities, right? There's chemical things happening to us. And actually, you know, they've done studies that show certain chemicals that get released when we get angry. And studies have shown that some people, these chemicals release quicker and stay in their systems longer. And other people, it's harder to activate those, and even when they are activated, it disappears quicker. So we don't want to put ourselves off the hook, but we do want to acknowledge that there are things happening at multiple levels. And I think anger is often about something unresolved, isn't it? Something that's happening in our life that we are dealing with, and then something else triggers it. And so we can react to something, but often there's something else deeper, if we were to probe a little deeper. We've all had moments of anger while driving, either getting angry ourselves or seeing someone else um, 
who was angry and they're driving toward us. Personally, I don't like to be late to things, but I also have four small children and life happens in certain ways that are sometimes beyond your control. But when I'm driving and I'm late, I tend not to be the calm, contemplative driver and person that I aspire to be. In fact, yesterday I was driving, I was a little bit late, we had our contemplative listening circle, and here I was leaving late for a contemplative gathering and finding my energy, you know, rising as this car in front of me at this stop sign is not turning right when it's wide open and I've got to be somewhere. I'm getting upset right now, just thinking about it. <laughs> Right? So things can, things can provoke anger within us. The rabbis in the Mishnah said that there are four types of temperament. Those who are quick to anger, but then quick to be appeased. Those who are slow to anger, so it takes them a while to be angry, but then once they are angry, it's hard to bring them back. They're slow to be appeased. And those who are slow to anger and then quick to be appeased, and they, they describe that as a saintly temperament. So it takes you a long time to get angry, but then when you are, you get over it quickly. And then the fourth one is you are quick to be angry, and it's really hard to undo the anger at that point. And they call that, they describe that as a wicked temperament. So if you want to slot yourself in on one of those four, I'll let you do that. <laughs> but as we know, uh, Anger is something, the initial flash of anger that often happens to us involuntarily, right? There's something that triggers something within us, and sometimes it just happens before we're even in a position to have a thought about it. It just happens at this sort of deeper uh, level, perhaps this chemical level. But the choice that faces all of us is whether we choose to indulge in that anger, to feed on that anger, to allow that anger to build. And where anger really does its damage is when we can't let it go. And that's the kind of anger we often call resentment. The Buddha said, holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Right? We think we're changing the situation, but we're really just harming ourselves. A former prisoner of war was visiting a friend who had shared this ordeal with him. And he asked his friend, have you forgiven our captors? Yes, he said. The friend said, yes, I have. And he said, well, I haven't, and I'm still consumed with hatred for them. Well, in that case, his friend said gently, they still have you in prison. The book Alcoholics Anonymous makes an astounding statement. It says resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. And we might think, well, that must be wrong. It has to be alcohol that destroys alcoholics. But it goes on in the next sentence and says, from resentment stems all forms of spiritual disease. Ernest Kurtz and Catherine Ketchum in their book, The Spirituality of Imperfection, state that resentment is the poison of the spiritual life. And the word literally means to feel again, resentment. Resentment, to feel something again, 
And so the emphasis is this clinging to the past. So resentment goes over and over an old injury, right? Somebody who insulted you or slighted you in some way, and you just keep replaying that over and over and over. And when we do that, it builds and it builds and it builds. And perhaps that original injury actually becomes much more worse in our minds than it ever was in reality. And what resentment does, according to these authors, is reinforce the vision of self as victim. This horrible thing was done to me, and we continue to operate out of that identity. And they say this is the antithesis of spirituality, for spirituality begins with the recognition of our own imperfection. By focusing on the past faults and failings of others, we are blinded to the reality of what's happening within us. And of course, later we hear Jesus say that first, before you worry about the sliver in your brother's eye, worry about the plank in your own. And the desert monk from the fourth century, Evagrius Ponticus, noted that there's a proper and an improper use of anger. And he said, we need to reclaim anger for its proper purpose. It's a waste of anger to get angry at other people. What the spiritual person needs to do is instead focus the attention on the fact that he or she is angry in the first place. And so instead of seeing some other human beings angrily, we need to see and recognize the anger in ourselves. And then we can begin to fight against it. We need to be able to step out of ourselves in a way to look at that anger and say, why am I so angry? What's happening in my life that this is here? And if it's a real issue, a regular issue, what's going on? What's happening? What is the discontent? What is the dissatisfaction of this anger? And anger is difficult, right? difficult and we need all the tools available to us so there may be things that you know that trigger that anger work to put yourself in a position where that doesn't happen if there are things that you eat that help trigger that um, anger you need to know you need to know that and uh, employ that and we also need to be able to forgive ourselves we need to be able to admit if we need help, right? Perhaps help from a friend or even professional help. Because sometimes we have deep-seated things within us that we're even unable to resolve ourselves. And Jesus, again, brings it back to the rest restoration of the relationship, reconciliation, to not walk away from each other if we don't have to. And so when Peter will later ask, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother if he sins against me? He's looking for that limit, right? He's looking for that way out that, well, eventually I can say, he's just blown it too many times and I can just kind of get on with my life and write him off. But Jesus says, not so fast. Forgive them 70 times seven. In other words, do not ever stop forgiving. Francis Wicks, in his book, the, War, the Inner World of Choice, says, Until a man or a woman has conquered in himself that which causes war, he contributes consciously or unconsciously to warfare in the world. But if we can conquer the battle within, 
we become citizens of a world where peace is possible. We asked why murder was on the list of commands in ancient times. Why adultery? Well, because we're fragile beings with powerful impulses within us, impulses for good and for beauty and for joy and compassion, surely, but also impulses that can get the better of us. By prohibiting adultery in ancient times, there may very well be that God was protecting women at some level. In a patriarchal society, it was often a given that a man could do what he wanted in regards to his sexual life, and women were often on the short end of that. And by prohibiting adultery, there was at least a measure of protection that they might not have had otherwise. But again, Jesus takes us deeper. Knowing that we're physical creatures gifted with physical longings, we're gifted with sexual desires which express a longing for connection, for intimacy, for love. Julian of Norwich in the 14th century noted that this is a gift from God, the sensuality that he's given us. And she said that it's within our sensuality that God wants to dwell. Sensuality in the sense of our earthiness, our bodiliness, that God does not look at our bodiliness and say, get away from that to become these non-physical spiritual beings. That's not the goal. And so sexuality is a good gift from God. Yet like anger, sexual desires are a powerful force. They're beautiful and delicate as a flower, but as potentially powerful and destructive as fire. As a newly married man, I made the brilliant move of taking my new bride on our honeymoon to a beach in Spain. And if you know anything about European beaches, particularly on the Mediterranean, you'll know that tops are optional for women. So there we are, you know, just enjoying our honeymoon and walking down the beach and, you know, topless women left and right and me repeating, honey, I, what? What other women? I have eyes only for you. <laughs> if you're looking for any other honeymoon tips, I'm happy to talk with you, <laughs> talk with you later. But we should note that attraction, like anger, is something that happens involuntarily to us. Right? We're physical beings created with these longings, and these have deep physiological bases within us, right? Years and years of evolutionary uh, and biological realities. And so it's normal to see someone to sense a potential attraction. And I don't think Jesus is saying it's wrong to sense that moment of attraction, which might be like saying it's wrong to have your eyes open. What he is saying is, are you going to indulge that? Are you going to indulge that? Are you going to put yourself in a position where you sit with that attraction, where you fantasize about it, where you can't turn those desires off, and there you've crossed into another level? So I don't think Jesus is about is being a prude here or being overly puritanical. I think it's about having boundaries for the sake of health and well-being for ourselves and those we're in relationship with. For example, I love chocolate-covered raisins, one of my favorite things uh, in the world in terms of snacks. But if I had chocolate-covered raisins on my peanut butter toast, 
in the morning and I had a bowl of chocolate covered raisins with my lunch and I had a chocolate raisin pie with whipped cream for dessert at dinner every time, right? I might start to really yuck, hate chocolate covered raisins. And so, you know, I give myself boundaries with chocolate covered raisins. <laughs> And because sexual desire is such a strong and volatile force within us, we need to have these boundaries. And so if you know that this is a struggle for you, it doesn't help, right, to linger in a certain magazine section or to browse certain websites. You know you're putting yourself in a position where you're going to fail. And there's a lot of shame in this area, certainly. Certainly for guys, but I imagine for all of us as human creatures. And God longs for us to be whole and healthy, to have whole and healthy relationships. And sex is a beautiful gift for relationships. And yet if we take it out of the context or boundary of a committed relationship, it can easily become this mental or physical transaction that we have with a real or imagined other person. And we turn them into an object to be used, to be objectified, and we reduce ourselves in the process. And so Jesus invites us to consider this level of the heart, to consider what inner work we have to do. And we have to remember that there is grace and forgiveness, but we have to know our own weaknesses and be intentional about wisdom and boundaries in these areas. Jesus also brings up divorce in this context. Men were allowed to divorce for any reason whatsoever, as understood by Rabbi Hillel and those who followed his school of thinking. And as we saw or read in our translation earlier, our custom says if anyone wants to be rid of his wife, he can divorce her merely by giving her a letter of dismissal. And this left women in a very vulnerable position, which is why Jesus seemed to side with the stricter school of Rabbi Shammai. Because again, the impulse for Jesus is to protect the vulnerable and to push for the reconciliation and restoration of relationships. And yet we acknowledge that relationships are complex. Marriage is complex. There are times where it seems it simply cannot work. And there is a time for walking away, for health, for safety, for personal sanity sometimes for a reason we ourselves don't understand. And so we need to support each other and create communities where we can be with each other in uh, the confusion and challenge and blessing of our relationships. Anger, desire, rage, lust, these are powerful passions within us. And these days we're spending a lot of time and energy looking out in the world and seeing all the injustices out there, seeing the shortcomings, the things we wish were another way, and certainly we ought to be paying attention right now. We ought to be working for peace and justice and wholeness in the world. But let us not forget to look within to wage peace in our own hearts, to give everything we have to become the kind of people we long to see in the world. And this is not an easy path. We fail, we mess up, we hurt each other, we hurt ourselves. 
But we're not seeking a spirituality of perfection. We're seeking a spirituality of growth. And with each step, whether it's forward or backward, remember that God embraces you in all of your beautiful and broken ways. And so may you hear God say, I love you and I forgive you and I am with you always. Amen. And namaste. Thank you, Marissa, and to all our musicians today. And now, as you go from this place, may you remember that the world is too beautiful to be praised by only one voice. And so may you have the courage to sing your song. And we remember and know that the world is too broken to be healed by only one set of hands. And so may you have the courage to use your gifts. And as you go, may the light of God shine upon you and within you and through you. Amen. Amen. And go in peace.
are invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Thank you.